of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. The most important thing about September 11th, 2001 is the fact that it sensitizes us as a, as a nation to the pain and suffering that other countries have gone through, um, may go through in the future, um, some of which is attributable or supported by, has been in the past, by, by U.S. policies. And the degree to which we have felt that as a nation, I think, is important uh, and will give us energy to to reflect and, 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 and try and work harder on our own foreign policies uh, abroad so that there are no future September 11ths in Chile or, or in the United States. And I think that's the, that's the link between uh, the two of them. That's Peter Kornbluh, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. Welcome to this special AR archival program marking the 50th anniversary of the U.S. coup d'etat in Chile. On the other September 11th, 1973. September 11th is now engraved on the consciousness of Americans. Yet for the South American country of Chile, the date has a different and much more tragic significance. It was on that day in 1973 that the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende was overthrown in a CIA-backed military coup. Augusto Pinochet seized power. In the ensuing years, tens of thousands of Chileans were killed, jailed, tortured, and driven into exile. The U.S. role, under Nixon and his national security advisor Kissinger, in first destabilizing and then overthrowing the Allende government was decisive. It will rank among the most grotesque interventions ever undertaken by the United States. A few years after the coup, Nobel Peace Prize winner Kissinger visited Chile. He told General Pinochet, In the United States, as you know, we are sympathetic with what you are trying to do here. Peter Kornblu is senior analyst with the National Security Archive in Washington, D.C., He's done extensive research on the coup in Chile and its aftermath. He's the author of the book, The Pinochet File. Peter Kornbluh spoke at the annual Talking Together lecture series at the Wellfleet Public Library in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Part of what I'm going to be speaking about is the other September 11th. Uh, many in my community think of it as the first September 11th, and that is the date, uh, 1973, of the Chilean coup, Pinochet's takeover uh, in Chile and the launch of uh, his 17-year dictatorship. For many Chileans, September 11th, 1973, was an act of uh, terrorism, uh, uh, an act of brutal violence, unprecedented in their political history, on their institutions, and on many, many individuals. Um, an act uh, clearly, as we look at the evidence uh, that has come out since, uh, to terrorize uh, large portions of the Chilean 
community um, and even eliminate uh, specific sectors of that society. The Chilean coup, of course, had an external component, and that is the support of the United States of America, notably two policymakers, President Richard Nixon and, and his then National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, who then became Secretary of State only days after the coup took place. That support certainly did contribute to the changes that took place, the fateful change of Chilean history uh, in 73 and thereafter. And it certainly, I think, contributed to changing our own history uh, as well. Some have seen a connection between the two September 11s. And that is something that at the end of my talk I'd, I'd certainly like to address. But as, as I start, let me just say that we're gathered here on a week that has been a very good week for Augusto Pinochet, who is back in the news once again. His good news is that he has basically beaten the rap, that he has been ruled um, too demented to be persecuted, to be prosecuted. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, the case uh, that has been filed against him, which is a very specific case in Chile of um, uh, a massacre that took place, a kind of a moving massacre that took place in October of 1973, when he sent one of his agents out uh, with a kind of a death squad team in a helicopter with papers that Pinochet had signed saying this team uh, should be allowed to, quote, expedite justice uh, in the northern region of Chile. And every place that this helicopter landed with this uh, military team on it, people were taken out of jail. They were already in jail, uh, waiting to be indicted, waiting to be tried for crime, for the, basically for the crime of supporting the previously elected government of Salvador Allende. And they were taken out of jail in the middle of the night and, and, and shot. The helicopter would then move on to the next province, and the same thing would happen. And this it happened five times over the course of six days, and in the end, 73 people were dead, and I think 18 of them never were found again. And under a loophole in Chilean law, those 18 disappeared, desaparecidos, um, created a possibility for the families to file a case against Augusto Pinochet, and that is the specific case that he has now been ruled uh, too mentally ill to face a, a court of law. So he has essentially escaped justice. And that is, I think, a very sad fact for, for many, many people, particularly his victims who had hoped to at least have the opportunity to face him uh, in a court of law. But I'm here to tell you that, of course, he may have escaped justice, but he certainly cannot escape history. And those who supported him cannot escape history. And indeed, among the many, many significant impacts, uh, uh, results of his arrest, stunning arrest in October of 1998 in London, uh, where he was vacationing um, then, was um, the fact that we were able to use the international attention, international pressure around his arrest to push the Clinton administration to declassify over 24,000 never-before-seen documents that recorded 
many of them, almost a day-to-day history of U.S. involvement in Chile, U.S. actions in Chile, the U.S. Uh, policies towards Chile, U.S. support for the coup, endorsement of Pinochet's regime. Many, many documents, many documents that recorded evidence of the atrocities of his regime, which in the end become the only evidence on paper uh, that we have and that Chileans have uh, on these uh, atrocities. The last 16,000 of them were released in November of two of the year 2000. They included all of the CIA records uh, that the agency had tried very hard to withhold from this process, to conceal and to hide. I call these documents the Pinochet file. Um, because, of course, uh, they were released with a focus on his arrest and on the pressure to have some accountability, both about his human rights abuses and about what the United States uh, knew and did about those abuses. Some of you won't be too surprised to know that many of the documents that were released look like this. And when the censors who wield this black magic marker in the name of national security got tired of all of this inking, they would release the documents and they would look like like this, which is certainly much easier. You just give a white page out and say the whole page is denied in full. You don't have to bother with with selective uh, inking. But on the whole, the documents... Uh, that were released together tell an extraordinary story uh, of U.S. involvement and knowledge, actions and inaction uh, in Chile. They provide compelling evidence that can be used in Chilean courts and perhaps even in U.S. courts at some point. They really do add up to a dossier of atrocity, which it is my hope Uh, will provide historical accountability where legal accountability may no longer be be possible. I've spent the last year reading almost every single one of this last release, these 16,000 documents, uh, which include uh, several thousand uh, declassified CIA operational records of U.S. involvement uh, to overthrow the Allende government between 1970 and 1973, and and many, many other documents. And there are so many stories that they tell, I couldn't begin in the short time that we have to, to go over all of them. But I wanted to share some of my findings with you and just simply break down these documents uh, and what they reveal into uh, several uh, different uh, categories. These categories, in terms of the utility of these documents, are basically four. They allow us to be a fly on the wall uh, in the decision-making process of the U.S. government. And not just one administration or two administrations, but almost all of the administrations uh, that dealt with Allende and and Pinochet uh, over a 20-year period, 20 years of history, 20 years of policymaking that it times we can actually sit in the room now with these documents and hear our president, our national security advisor, our secretary of state, and all of the cabinet members, the CIA director, all discussing 
what to do and how to do it. They allow victims of human rights abuses in Chile to pursue justice and to learn about evidence that the U.S. government had in their cases that in, in several prominent cases were, were, were withheld from these families at the time. Um, one such family is the family of Charles Horman, about whom the movie Missing was made uh, 20 years ago. Uh, another such family is the family of Orlando Letelier, uh, who was killed by a car bomb uh, in Washington, D.C., along with a colleague of his, a uh, 25-year-old New Jersey woman named Ronnie Carpen Moffat, uh, who was a passenger in the car. Their families have learned a great deal about what the United States knew, um, but didn't tell them uh, 27 years ago when this act of international terrorism took place. They allow us to begin to rewrite the history books, which is what I'm trying to do with, uh, with my book, The Pinochet File, to basically take these documents and compare them to the memoirs of people like Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger and others, uh, and to see what the underlying truth is uh, that uh, didn't make it into the public accounts of these uh, retired officials. And finally, and I think for me most importantly, they provide a modicum of history uh, and accountability for Pinochet, for Kissinger, for Nixon, uh, and, and many, many others. The documents name names. Um, uh, you know who said what, you know who did what, who argued for what policy, who was responsible for what. Uh, and, and I think that is extremely important, particularly when we have a situation where it is unlikely that anybody will be tried legally uh, for policies that uh, did result in, in, in true crimes against uh, humanity. Let me just go through very quickly these, these four categories with examples. I've got a little show and tell here. I brought some of the documents on transparencies. This is a, a, a document that, again, gives you this idea of being a fly, in, fly on the wall in the room. This is the notes of uh, the CIA uh, director at the time, uh, Richard Helms. These were the only known notes when they were declassified, and these documents were declassified some years ago. This document came out some years ago. It's the only extant document recording a president of the United States ordering the overthrow of a democratically elected government. Yes, we have documents on John F. Kennedy talking about CIA efforts to overthrow Fidel Castro, um, but that was very different from from this document where Salvador Allende had been elected in a three-way race in Chile. Certainly his, his victory was, was narrow. He had won by 36,000 votes in Chile. But looking back on our own most recent election, where our current president may have only won, if at all, by 500 votes, we see that 36,000 is, uh, is nothing to sneeze at. In any event, here you have the president of the United States telling the CIA director that he must save Chile. He can spend $10 million. He should make the economy scream. Use the best men we have. 48 hours, come up with a plan of action, present it to Henry Kissinger. And this is where we start this history, with Richard Nixon deciding that the election of Salvador Allende in Chile was unacceptable to the United States, 
and ordering the CIA to prevent Allende from actually stepping, uh, taking, taking office. Here he had been elected. He had not yet been inaugurated. Uh, and uh, the president was telling the CIA to go in there and basically create a climate for a coup, foment domestic upheaval, economic chaos, in order to force the Chilean military to, to block Allende from even becoming uh, inaugur being inaugurated as president. This is a document is dated September 15, 1970. The inauguration was due to be on November 4th. 1970, and in a 15-minute meeting, you see what uh, what orders were given. But let me just share with you a document that did come out in November of, of 2000. One of the outstanding questions for historians has always been, why? Why did Nixon care so much about not even a communist uh, candidate in Chile, but a socialist candidate in, in Chile, winning an election there. What was, were his reasons? And he, he publicly told a story three times uh, about what it was that compelled him to take this action against Allende. He was interviewed by David Frost at one point in the mid-1970s, and in his memoirs, he repeated the same story. And this was a domino theory story. Um, he said that an Italian businessman had come to him after Allende was elected and said, you know, Mr. President, you have communist Cuba in the Caribbean, and now you have the election of a you know, avowed socialist on the mainland of Latin America. Um, you have a red sandwich, <laughs> and pretty soon it will all be red. You know, you had the two, two sides, and it was all going to it's all going to come together. This was the kind of domino theory idea that, 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 that Nixon said, said publicly. Finally, November of 2000, we have a document that was withheld from us from all, for all these years. It was a document created in November, two days after Allende's inauguration, where all of these initial covert operations to thwart his actually becoming president had failed. And now Nixon was sitting down with his entire cabinet. And finally, after all these years, we have the minutes, the actual transcript of the cabinet meeting with Nixon and, and Spiro Agnew and Secretary of State Rogers and Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird. You know, we've forgotten about these guys, haven't we? Um, but uh, most of us uh, can remember uh, them here. Um, Richard Helms and, and, and uh, Henry Kissinger, and they're all sitting around together in the cabinet room, and they are talking about, and I quote from the document, doing it right and bringing him down. We can bring his downfall, as uh, Secretary of Rogers put it. We have to do everything we can to hurt him and bring him down as the Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, put it. And here was Nixon convening his entire cabinet to say, okay, Allende's been inaugurated, but now we have to do whatever we can across the board in all of our agencies to undermine him and bring him down. And Nixon told his cabinet for the first time, the only time we have his actual words of what was bothering him 
about Allende's election. Our main concern in Chile, he says, is the prospect that Allende can consolidate himself and the picture projected to the world will be his success. In other words, that he would be democratically elected socialist, that he would be able to reform Chile's economic institutions um, uh, significantly through the electoral process, and that other countries would see this as a model of success. Not that he would take over, create a communist dictatorship, uh, and kind of militarily or forcefully repress the people and, and, and export revolution, but that he would be seen as a model of, of, of success. And then he goes, then he goes on to say that if there's any way we can hurt him, by government or private business, I want them to know our policy is negative. He said, no impression should be permitted in Latin America that they can get away with this, i.e. electing the leftist president, that it's safe to go this way, Nixon says. And then for those of you who remember his famous speech in the, in the 50s about not having him to be kicked around anymore when he claimed he was going to retire from politics, which he then didn't, he states, all over the world, it's too much the fashion to kick us around. We cannot fail to show our displeasure. And that was the true reasons why Richard Nixon took, undertook these, these policies and ordered uh, Allende to be, to be undermined and, and overthrown. The documents allow us to be in the room as these things are being discussed and stated. We now have dozens of transcripts of Henry Kissinger's meetings, not only with his own staff, but with Chilean officials uh, as well. And those allow us to begin rewriting history. Henry Kissinger, a very, very intelligent fellow, and he wrote three very comprehensive volumes of memoirs. And slowly but surely, my organization, the National Security Archive, has been obtaining the documents that he used for those three volumes of memoirs. Now, what Kissinger did is he took all of his documents with him when he left the government and he put them into a secret trust in the Library of Congress where they were organized by some by a staff that he employed. They were off limits to, uh, to everybody else until five years after his death. Among these documents were what are called telcons, and that is the transcripts of his many telephone conversations which he recorded we have an interesting dynamic now in that Richard Nixon, of course, recorded his telephone conversations, too, with a taping device in, in his office. Kissinger had a secretary turn on a, a, a kind of a recording machine on an outside phone outside of his office and then type up a transcript after every phone call of, of what was said. And now we, when, of course, Nixon and Kissinger talk to each other, we now have two sets of, of recorded transcripts. Um, and in the case of Nixon himself, we actually have the tapes. 
But slowly but surely, we've been getting documents declassified. One of the ones we got declassified, my organization recently, was a document which was a transcript of a conversation between Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford, Henry Kissinger, uh, and the uh, dictator in, in uh, Indonesia about the invasion that was about to happen of East Timor. I don't know how many of you saw this uh, big spread on this document in the New York Times, but Kissinger in his memoirs had written that they barely discussed East Timor. And this document showed that, in fact, the majority of the meeting was about East Timor and uh, 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 President of Indonesia has basically said to Kissinger and Ford, we're going to invade East Timor tomorrow. We want to make sure that you're okay with this. And Kissinger responded, well, it would be better if you waited until we got back to Washington so we could handle the fallout of all this, because certainly we're going to be accused of giving you weapons um, that were supposed to be just for defensive purposes and not for offensive uh, purposes. But we will handle this. If you just let us get back to Washington, we will take care of this. Uh, it was basically a document that showed that, that Kissinger and Ford knew in advance about the pending invasion and gave their approval for it. It's known as the green light document. Kissinger was forced to kind of basically apologize to the New York Times reporter and say that, yes, his memoirs were not uh, accurate because, of course, the history was classified at the time that, that, that he wrote it. Now it's been declassified. We've been able to do this with the Chilean case as well. In his last set of memoirs, which are about his years in the Ford uh, administration as Secretary of State, Kissinger wrote uh, about a meeting that he had with Augusto Pinochet in June of 1976. This was at the height of Pinochet's repression. Almost 3,000 people at that point had been killed, tortured to death, or disappeared. Uh, and Kissinger had briefing papers uh, telling him about all of these atrocities. He went uh, to give a speech, ironically, on human rights at the OAS conference in Santiago. Um, yeah, because part of what had happened was that the Congress and the American public were very upset about the Ford and Kissinger policy of supporting Pinochet regardless of his human rights atrocities. And human rights legislation was being passed in Washington that was basically curtailing the, the, the latitude of policymakers like Kissinger to support the Pinochets of, of the world. And so his staff said to him, if you give a strong speech on human rights uh, in Chile uh, and you bring some pressure on the Chileans, you'll be able to mollify Congress. Uh, so Kissinger agreed to go to, to, to Chile and, and, and give this speech. But before he gave the speech, he went and had a private meeting with Augusto Pinochet. And in his memoir, uh, he wrote that a considerable amount of time in my dialogue, I'm quoting from his, his memoir, a considerable amount of time in my dialogue with Pinochet was devoted to human rights, which were, in fact, the principal obstacle to close United States relations with Chile. I outline my main point, main points of my speech, the OAS, which I would deliver the next day. Pinochet made no comment. So that's what's in his memoirs. One of the documents that was declassified is the actual transcript of his meeting with Augusto uh, Pinochet, which I will 
pass around so people can take a look at it. Let me just tell you what he's, what the section where, where Kissinger talks to Pinochet about the fact that he's going to give this speech the next day at the OAS. This is what he actually said. Um, in contrast to what he says in his memoir, this is the MemCon, the Memorandum of Conversation. Kissinger says, I will treat human rights in general terms and human rights in a world context. I will refer in two paragraphs to the report on Chile that was published by the OAS Human Rights Commission. I will say that the human rights issue has impaired relations between the United States and Chile. This is partly the result of congressional actions. I will add that I hope you will shortly remove those obstacles. Then this is the important part. I can do no less, he told Pinochet, without producing a reaction in the United States which would lead to legislative restrictions. The speech is not aimed at Chile. I wanted to tell you about this. My evaluation is that you are a victim of all left-wing groups around the world and that your greatest sin was that you overthrew a government that was going communist. You're listening to Peter Kornblum, the other September 11th, Chile, 1973. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. That's what Kissinger actually said to Pinochet. Yes, he said, I'm going to give this speech tomorrow. But he also said, don't worry, it's not directed at you. I don't feel this way about you. I think you're a victim of left-wing propaganda. Uh, and basically gave Pinochet a pat on the back. Pinochet actually did respond. And uh, the conversation went on. Pinochet actually complained to Kissinger about the human rights legislation that was being passed by Senator Kennedy and uh, then Congressman Tom Harkin and, and, and others, um, basically placing human rights criteria on, on U.S. ability to give military aid and economic aid to, to, the, Pinochet, to the Pinochet government. He said, and basically, Pinochet complained. Um, so in his memoir, Kissinger relates this, that Pinochet said to me that Russia supports their people 100%, but you, you have a punitive system for your friends. The United States, you know, is bad to its friends. And then Kissinger writes in his memoir, I return to my underlying theme that any major help from us would realistically depend on progress on human rights. That's what he writes in his memoir. Well, here's the memorandum of conversation. This is what he actually said when Pinochet complained. He said, there is merit in what you say. It is a curious time in the United States. It is unfortunate. We have been through Vietnam and Watergate. We will have to wait till the 1976 elections. We welcome the overthrow of the communist-inclined government here. We are not out to weaken your position. And then later in the meeting, in the memorandum of conversation, Kissinger says to Pinochet, we want to help not undermine you. 
You did a great service to the West in overthrowing Allende. In the United States, as you know, we are sympathetic with what you are trying to do here. That passage did not make it into his memoir, obviously. But now we have documents like that, and they will help us, I think, begin to rewrite uh, what has been a distorted history of these kinds of relations. Now, let me move quickly to the issue of the pursuit of justice, because this is the most elusive and difficult area. There are many, many victims, thousands and thousands of victims in Chile. Among them have been some prominent American families. Uh, this horrible atrocity, uh, two actual atrocities right after the coup, uh, took the lives of two American uh, young men, Charles Horman, about whom the movie Missing was made, and a, a second um, uh, U.S. student, Frank Teruji, who was killed also in the National Stadium after being taken from his apartment by, by, military, uh, by a military patrol. Um, both of their deaths were covered up by the Pinochet regime at the time. It took years for... Uh, information to be uh, uncovered. Um, the families of both Teruji and Horman suspected that the United States knew far more about what had happened uh, than uh, anybody uh, let on. In the late 1970s, the Horman family, um, Ed Horman, who's played by Jack Lemmon in the movie Missing, how many people have seen the movie? Quite a few of you. You remember that movie? Sissy Spacek played Joyce Horman, um, and the Horman family, Joyce and, and her father-in-law, Ed, brought a suit against U.S. officials. One of the reasons they brought this suit was because under, if they were involved in a legal case, they had more pressure uh, to get documents declassified. And one of the documents they got declassified was, was this one. Uh, which is by a State Department, uh, three State Department officials in 1976. Um, and you'll notice that at the bottom uh, of this page, page one, oh, there's a very significant paragraph blacked out. Now, on the next page of the document that was given to the family in, this document was given to the family in 1980. Yeah, the next page. You'll see that at the top, uh, a continuation of that paragraph, of the, uh, or second paragraph, is also blacked out on page two. This is the document as it was given to the family. The family of the most celebrated, notorious case of an American being killed after the coup in Chile. Twenty years later, the same document was declassified again under the special Clinton declassification project. And let's see what it looked like. Page one at the bottom. Intact. Based on what we have, we are persuaded that the government of Chile sought Horman uh, and felt threatened enough to order his immediate execution the government of Chile may have believed this American could be killed without negative fallout from the U.S. government. There is some circumstantial evidence to suggest U.S. intelligence may have played an unfortunate part in Horman's death. At best, 
It was limited to providing or confirming information that helped motivate his murder by the government of Chile. At worst, U.S. intelligence was aware the government of Chile saw Horman in a rather serious light, and U.S. officials did nothing to discourage the logical outcome of government of Chile paranoia. These two key passages were kept from the family for 20 years by the keepers of, of the secrets uh, in our, our U.S. government. Um, they did not want to admit in 1976 that the U.S. government actually knew that Horman had been executed by the Chilean military. And they certainly did not want to admit, uh, faced with a lawsuit, faced with human rights movement and pressure in Congress, um, that the United States had had anything to do with it. And yet these State Department officials shared the exact same suspicion, which was the premise of the movie Missing, which was that the intelligence community, both in the military and perhaps in the CIA, had had contacts with the Chilean military um, and had either led them to believe that Horman could be killed without consequences or had passed some intelligence on his activities, on leftist activities uh, that they perceived he, him and Teruji to be conducting in Chile uh, to the Chilean military, which uh, helped prompt them to go ahead and, and kill both Horman uh, and Teruji. Now, this is a case that remains unsolved, and I hope will be solved with the use of these types of documents. I believe that these documents were taken to Chile. I went with Joyce Horman uh, in December of, uh, of uh, the year 2000, um, and uh, she presented these documents to a judge in Chile, the same judge prosecuting Augusto Pinochet, uh, and um, she filed a case in Chile, not against U.S. officials, as she had tried to to sue here, but against but but against Chileans, against the Chilean military officials who ran the national stadium, who were in charge of the prisoners there, and who obviously gave the order uh, to uh, kill Charles Horman and Frank Teruji, as well as those uh, soldiers who actually. Uh, implemented that order and fulfilled the, the, the execution. Through that avenue, uh, which was made possible by the presentation of new documents from the United States, she has been able, I think, to open up a whole new route, um, seeking evidence, depositions, identifying the Chilean officials who were in the National Stadium. And I'm crossing my fingers that that will lead to identifying those culpable not only in the case of Horman and Truji, but also perhaps as much as 300 other prisoners who were held in the National Stadium in the three weeks following the coup and who were executed at the time. One of the most substantive massacres uh, in, in Latin America that, that ever happened in, in, in one place, those 300 being killed uh, over a three-week period uh, uh, in in the National Stadium, one of the initial massacres under the Pinochet regime. There's a second case, and let me just just share it with you, uh, put on the next document. Even a more famous case now is a case that, that has taken on ever greater symbolism with um, the act of international terrorism that took place in our country September 11th of 2001. 
before the plane uh, that hit the Pentagon that day, killing all aboard as well as some 270 uh, officials and civilians at the Pentagon building itself, before that attack, the most egregious act of international terrorism ever to take place in our nation's capital was this car bombing uh, orchestrated by Pinochet's secret police that claimed the life of Orlando Letelier, who had been an Allende ambassador to Washington, and a colleague of his, Ronnie Carpenter Moffat. This is a CIA cable on the Letelier car bombing dated October 6, 1978. If you can push it up just a little bit, you'll see the bottom. Um, the CIA has blacked out all of the routing information. You don't know who the source is, but you can kind of tell by reading it closely that it's somebody within the military. Um, this is the first major intelligence cable that the CIA sent from Santiago um, reporting on what it had learned about this atrocity and and the the car bombing was on September 21st this cable is dated the 6th of October so uh, about uh, 15 or 16 days later page 2 you will see uh is almost entirely blacked out entirely redacted you know under national security grounds somehow letting us read what's under those blacked out lines would uh, compromise the CIA's sources and methods. Of course, this was a case of international terrorism. You'd think that it would be more important to solve this case rather than hide the information. Um, this document was given to the Letelier and Moffat uh, families also back in 1981 when they sued uh, uh, not the U.S. government, but they sued the Chileans and they sought uh, U.S. documents and they filed a Freedom of Information Act case and got uh, quite a few documents, but most of them looked like this. Twenty years later, again, under this new batch of documents, we see just a few, a little bit more information, and, and let's see what it looks like, just so you... Now you see that... that, that at least part of page two has been released. And what does it tell us? The source, whose name is blacked out there next to point two, believes that the Chilean government is directly involved in Letelier's death and feels that investigations into the incident will so indicate. And then the source describes a meeting which obviously is all is blacked out there because that would give away who he is and what he you know what his place in the Chilean government is, um, and describes that that that, that Pinochet himself uh, had basically fingered Letelier, had brought up the issue of Letelier's criticism and deemed it unacceptable. In other words, the source is basically saying Pinochet authorized this assassination by telling his secret police officials that Letelier's criticism of the Chilean government was unacceptable. And then we would learn a whole lot more about where that information came from if they would, you know, release the rest of the document. But so the Letelier and Moffat families have also learned just from this one new page 
um, that all these years, the CIA from the initial days after the assassination had a source that told them that the Chilean government was responsible and that Pinochet had basically set this in motion. They didn't have access to this document. Instead, what happened? The CIA basically told the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Newsweek magazine, only days after they sent this document, that they felt that the Chilean government couldn't possibly be responsible for this atrocity, for this act of international terrorism. Because the bomb was too crude, because nobody in the Chilean government ever would have believed that they could get away with this, uh, and because it would have a negative impact on, on Chile's image. Even though they had this document in their possession, this intelligence, they planted these stories in the U.S. press, uh, and they stood there in the U.S. press and for over two years until Justice Department investigators finally got a break in the case and were able to identify uh, the Chilean secret police officials who, who were involved in this act of international terrorism. Finally, what can these documents do in terms of history and accountability? And I, I think they can do everything. Uh, I don't think we're going to have officials like Pinochet or Henry Kissinger ever admitting uh, to the atrocities uh, that they engaged in, what they knew, when they knew it, uh, what their function was. But we have so many documents now that tell us uh, that in some ways we don't have to wait for them to, to admit these things. I mean, these documents will be used in a variety of ways. The family of a Chilean general who was killed um, in the fall of 1970, uh, his death was the equivalent in Chile to the Kennedy assassination here. It was the first major political assassination in 40 or 50 years in Chile. He was the, ch the, the uh, commander-in-chief of the, of the Chilean uh, armed forces, head of the Chilean Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and he was shot because he uh, opposed the military blocking Allende becoming uh, president. And so the CIA worked with coup plotters whose whole idea was that they would kidnap this guy and, uh, and secretly take him out of the country and get rid of him. Then they'd blame the kidnapping on Allende's people, and they would use that as a pretext to, to block Allende, take over the government, declare a military government in the fall of 1970. But instead of kidnapping him, they, they shot him. The paper trail of this operation goes straight up to Kissinger's office. Um, 60 Minutes did a, a program on this on September 9th uh, with all the documents, the fact that Kissinger was being sued by this family. And then, of course, a day and a half later, September 11th took place, and Suddenly, instead of historical accountability being kind of gaining some momentum, uh, putting Kissinger on the defensive for having been involved in an act of political assassination, he was on television saying, as an anti-terrorism expert, and actually saying that the United States should be involved in assassinations around the world, and if, uh, because that's uh, what would have prevented September 11th from, from taking place. Uh, he appeared not to have known at the time that Bill Clinton had authorized assassination attempts against Osama bin Laden in 1998 
that the CIA had been trying to take him out for three years and just had not been able to do so. But these documents, I think, certainly help us. Pinochet is off the hook. Um, he will die in the next, you know, however many years, an, an old man. But these documents um, carry a tremendous weight in Chile uh, them, them, themselves. Uh, not only has uh, his, did his arrest revive, revitalize the news coverage of the atrocities that took place during his 17-year rule, but the actual evidence from the U.S. secret archives were arrived in Chile and were printed on the front pages of all the newspapers, you know, not once, not twice, but, but many, many times over a two-and-a-half-year period. And now Chilean scholars are using U.S. documents to, to write books, and our books will come out here in the next two or three years. I think you'll see maybe a dozen new books on, 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 on the United States and Chile and, and, and what these documents show about Pinochet's human rights violations. And those will all, I think, help to, to change uh, history and, and bring some accountability. When these documents were released in November of 2000, we tried very hard to pressure President Clinton to issue an apology along uh, with them because they were so strong, so so dramatic. Um, uh, and the Clinton White House re refused to do so. It was a whole behind-the-scenes negotiation and debate and uh, just back and forth that took place in terms of drafting a statement for the president to issue. The State Department officials wanted, wrote a, you know, wrote a memo. We think the president should say that that, we're, that, that, that the United States is sorry. Uh, the documents show that we certainly did undermine democracy in Chile and aided political terrorism and turned our back on human rights violations. So the State Department officials sent that over to the White House and then the specialist on Latin America, the National Security Council, took this and he scribbled it all out and, um, and, and instead wrote in a couple of sentences which were, were somewhat different. Um, the sentences, which I don't have in front of me, but I kind of remember from the top of my head, basically said, the United States uh, obviously contributed to the weakening of democratic institutions in Chile. We put these documents out there for the public to be able to judge the degree to which the United States made that contribution. And that's what the documents allow us to do. Many people are upset uh, that we don't have more, that we don't have legal verdicts. I think the historical verdict, the verdict of history, is, can be very, very powerful and very, very important. Let me just turn back to the September 11th issue to, to end my remarks. There are some people, not that many, but some after September 11th, who, who argued that... Um, the attack on New York and, and Washington, the attack on the United States, was basically the United States getting its, its, its due after inflicting such damage on other countries, Chile being prominent among them. Um, that basically this was blowback, payback and blowback for many of the really awful things that we had done with our foreign policy over the years. I didn't subscribe to, to that kind of argument. There, there are some connections between September 11th, 1973 and September 11th, 2001. 
interestingly, Pinochet's victims totaled about the same number of victims uh, in uh, the United States from from Osama bin Laden's uh, attack. But basically, it seems to me that the most important thing about September 11th, 2001, is the fact that it sensitizes us as a as a nation to the pain and suffering that other countries have gone through, um, may go through in the future, um, some of which is attributable or supported by, has been in the past, by, by U.S. policies. And the degree to which we have felt that as a nation, I think, is important uh, and will give us energy to to reflect and, 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 and try and work harder on our own foreign policies uh, abroad so that there are no future September 11th in Chile or, or in the United States. And I think that's the, that's the link between uh, the two of them. I thank you for coming. You were just listening to Peter Kornblue on the other September 11th, Chile. 1973. He spoke at the annual Talking Together lecture series at the Wellfleet Public Library in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. This AR archival program marks the 50th anniversary of the U.S. coup d'etat in Chile. Peter Kornblue is senior analyst at the National Security Archive in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Bay of Pigs Declassified, the secret CIA report, and The Pinochet File. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, an independent award-winning weekly series. AR features such voices as Robert McChesney, Edward Said, Barbara Ehrenreich, Howard Zinn, and Angela Davis. To access our catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website is alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for the program you just heard, the other September 11th, Chile, 1973, call us toll-free at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that toll-free number is 1-800-444-1977. Our address, AR, P.O. Box 551. Boulder, Colorado, 80306. Special thanks to Ethel Levy of Talking Together and to John Braden for recording the program. I'm David Barsamian. We close with music from Chile. The Unidad Popular, the popular unity movement led by Salvador Allende, not only had a strong social justice program, but also a rich and creative cultural component. In music, La Nueva Canción Chilena, the new song of Chile, had enormous influence throughout Latin America. Such great musicians and composers as Violeta Parra and ensembles such as Quilapayún and Inti Iimani have left a tremendous cultural legacy. One artist stands apart. That is Victor Jara, a now legendary singer-songwriter. He was an active supporter of the Allende government. Because of his politics and music, he was picked up and murdered during the 1973 coup. Victor Jara now 
singing Aki Mikedo, I'm Going to Stay Here, a defiant poem of resistance written by Pablo Neruda, Chile's Nobel Prize winner in literature. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Good Game Hunter, the show where we talk about good games and hunting for a great time. Okay, guys, let's do some serious talk here, okay? As a proud owner of way over 60 board games, I'm constantly struggling when it comes to board games and traveling. Yes, I have a problem, guys, okay? I want to bring all of them. But who wants to carry around a separate bag just for board games while you're already carrying a duffel bag? or a small case full of clothes for a week. So here are the small tips for anyone who wants to bring their board games while traveling. Tip number one, try to cut down on the packaging. You would be surprised how many games will cut down in size and in weight if you only bring necessary pieces without the box or any plastic pieces inside. Tip number two, choose games that are small in size. Obviously, I mean, yeah, it's kind of pretty obvious, but <laughs> there are plenty of games such as Bananagrams, Jungle Speed, Uno, that are extremely small yet can accommodate a large group of people and still be fun and interesting. Tip number three. Find games that have the same pieces, like a 52-card deck. Did you know that one deck of cards can be used in way over 20 different card games? All it takes is to do some research. And tip number four, consider renting board games at a local board game cafe. I know you're going to spend some money, but let's be honest with each other. If you're traveling to a large city, like Calgary, for example, there's a high chance there's a local card shop or a board game cafe that will provide this kind of service. So you don't have to bring anything with you and you can just visit them for a good board game night and drinks. Such places exist in Calgary as well, such as the Hexagon Board Game Cafe, where you can get a 10% off coffee menu if you present your CGSW Friends card. So make sure to check them out the next time your friends are going to come over to Calgary. And there you go. You don't have to struggle to have a good time with your friends, okay? Thank you for tuning in to CGSW on 90.9 FM and game on! I'm Ryan, and I approve this message. CGSW rocks 90.9 FM in Calgary. 